you know, it felt like the old days. I got the train, first early train into London, worked at my desk, left the office, got the train to St Albans, had my meeting, got a taxi back to the station, came back to the office. And I'm back. Whereas in the new, new days, you're um, get in the car and drive, don't you? Go home, work from home. Which I do. But then I live in the sticks. So yeah, which I would have done if I didn't have this. Got you. I'm glad you've made it. That's just showing off. That's just showing off. That is no, showing only off. Only because she's just emailed me, so I wanted to know how she'd done, just because they put money in around. Showing performance that's uh, up with no, Metabark, she's just <laughs> putting money in. <laughs> 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 Jonathan, Jonathan Performance, Raymond. He is charged. <laughs> right, fellas, let's go. Ready to go? Um, Ready to go. You've got an agenda. I've got an agenda. We've been rolling for the last two minutes as well. Oh, have we? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm very excited about this. I wanted to get some of the pearls of wisdom before we kicked off from you two because you two actually know what you're talking about he does he does right James i'm david henry tie. investment manager <laughs> we're tied for a reason <laughs> you're wearing a tie for a reason absolutely right um looking professional this is all very professional this is the first of hopefully many conversations to come yeah. taking stock after the bell these are your three regulars, for better or worse. I'm David Henry, investment manager uh, in the London office. I'm joined by James Hughes and Jonathan Raymond, CFA. <laughs> he's got a laptop in front of him so you can tell he knows what he's doing. Right, fellas, where do you want to start? I think there's only one place we can start. FTSE 8000, baby. Here I mean, we go. It's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, I didn't get my hat out for today, but I should have done. Um, <laughs> I mean... For the last three years, until last year, we've been told to sell all our UK equities. BP and Shell were dead. Uh, Microsoft and Amazon were the way to go, and the FTSE's uh, uh, been left behind. And lo and behold, the FTSE, FTSE had a pretty stonking year last year, both up absolutely, um, and well ahead of, of global indices. Um, we've got the MSCI UK Large Cap Index, which is an even more concentrated version of the FTSE, isn't it? I think there's only about 80 stocks in here. so. You know, BP, Shell, Astra, Diageo, Unilever, given what we've been through in the last 12 months, those sorts of stocks are the ones that you absolutely yeah. wanted to own. How many emails did you get from clients a couple of years ago saying, why do we hold any UK at all? Not, not to pick on people, because, you know, it's human nature to look at stuff that actually isn't working and say, why are we holding that? But lo and behold, bad, or sorry, good things happen to, to cheap assets quite a lot of the time, right? Yeah, and even today, if you look at the index at 8,000, the PE on that index is just over 10 times. It's not, it's not expensive. It's not like the S&P was last year. Not last year, the year before. Um, but yeah, going back to your question, you know, I think lots of clients questioned why we had any UK equities within our portfolios because that was where the major, major detraction came from. If you go back to do that, you know, the index hasn't really done anything since 2000. If yeah. you take if you take dividends out of it, um, <coughs> we all know that, you know, the FTSE does yield much better than other developed markets. Um, you know, pick out a couple of the miners, you've got Anglos yielding almost 8%, Rio's 7 um, Last year they were incredible performers as well. It's, um, but, but having having spent years writing about why the FTSE had detracted and, and how it was painfully destroying my performance, <laughs> I, I then had lots of questions asking why the portfolio hadn't kept pace with 
the FTSE index. Mm. And, that, yeah. and that was a challenge for clients because I think that's their go-to index all the times other developed markets are outperforming. Portfolios are doing better than the FTSE 100. Um, you know, everyone feels very happy, but when that reversed last year, that's definitely where there was more of a challenge from clients. Definitely. And, and some explanation around why. Mm. I mean, we sort of, it's been a, it's been not not a great run. I mean, I wrote about this earlier this week about the performance of the UK market versus the rest of the world. Last year was the first year since two thousand and eleven that actually the FTSE has outperformed the rest of the world. I mean, look at that run going back to two thousand and eleven. That's basically the entirety of my career. Yeah. It's been a one way trade. Um, yes. Thoughts on why that's been? I've got a couple, but. Let, let me hear what you think. I think we'd probably start with interest rates. Interest rates. Yeah. Low rates generally um, favours growth stocks. Technology fits into growth. So the Microsofts and the Apples of the world have had mm. 10 years of falling rates. The FTSE is, has got virtually nothing in technology sector-wise. Mm. Um, and on the flip side of that, it's been a pretty bad decade for commodities. Commodities boomed in the late noughties and again peaked in 2011 and since then it's been a one-way street until last year where you know 2015 2016 the oil price fell catastrophically mm. uh, and then we had covid on top of that so the uk market sectorally um was in the wrong place in a decade of essentially technology beating commodities yeah you had the chart. You had the China super cycle as well, didn't you? Which I was into just about to say. materials. That was the that was the narrative when you and I started working together, Jr. About the Chinese super cycle. What was mm. the stat about building so, uh, a city the size? Tw- of Twenty cities the size of Chicago were going to be built. Was, uh, Fast forward ten years, and you can't give these stocks no, away. It's amazing no. how it happens, isn't no. it? Yeah. And, and and that's why again that's why the FTSE screens on a P basis so cheaply. You know these these you know these miners and all stocks. Uh, cheap on a on an earnings basis mm. Mm. counterpoint i put it to you that they're over earning because commodity prices have exploded higher over the last couple of years yeah um you're going to see a little bit of earnings downgrades this year from the oil companies at 75 dollars an oil you know it's not at 120 like it mm. was in march last last year so yeah earnings will be a bit lower for some of those names and and but you know china reopening this year Energy transition is a long-term structural bull case. You know, if you want to build offshore wind turbines mm. or you want to build solar solar panels everywhere, you need lots of iron ore and lots of copper. And that's the, that's the very sad nature of kind of the energy transition is yeah. that lots of these commodities are going to be in high demand for the next five, ten years still. I mean, we've seen Tesla looking to potentially buy deposits in West Africa, places like that, because there's such a shortage of, of, of rare earths, and you know whether it's lithium or nickel or, or copper, you know, they, they have a problem of what's going into the cars and into the batteries, mm. especially as they're building out the battery technology as well. It's not just in the cars, it's um, you know, batteries in terms of link, you know, linked to solar panels and roofs and storage facilities and things. So um, it, it's that energy transition, I think, I think it's key. And when you know, we speak to experts in those fields or oil or, or and gas um, and, and materials analysts. I think the thing that, that will be supportive of, of oil companies in particular is um, the under exploration and investment that's gone into oil and gas over the last 10 years. Because you know, if, when I first started running money in 2004, our portfolios looked very different to what they did three or four years ago. 
even 10 years ago. <clears throat> you know, we had lots of financials, we had lots of oil and gas, lots of miners. We all, we all had Tesco supermarkets, Morrison's at the time, and, and just that construction was so different to, to where we are today. Um, but there were lots of junior mining companies and lots of junior oil and gas companies being listed by brokers across the city. And that's where lots of exciting capital was going. So, yeah. you know, I think if I take, go back to 2004 5, and we discussed it a lot, we had one tech fund, which was actually a UK operated small tech investment trust. You know, mm. tech was still a dirty word in 2004 because mm. of what happened in the dot com. So, you know, I think the average age of a mutual fund manager in the US is early 30s, mid, you know, early mid 30s. Is it really? Yeah, it's incredibly low. And, and that's bearing in mind they go to university for a, or college for a lot longer than we do here. You know, they haven't seen that cycle. So I think they're operating in a very different environment to where we started. But, you know, going back to the exciting capital, it was, all, it was mining and oil and gas, and that just hasn't happened over the last few years no. because it's not viable. Well, that's where the that's where the underinvestment in that sector bites. It's not the Shell and the BP who've got access 100%. to capital relatively yeah. easily. It's the more junior, to use your mm. term phrase, exciting miners, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And there's a human resource issue as well. I mean, there was a, a good podcast about it on one of the Bloomberg podcasts I listened to a while ago. And if you think of a Chevron or an Exxon, mm. there is no one there my generation working in those companies because they've A, been laying people off for the last 10 years and B, it's just not cool to go become an engineer in our company. Who wants to do that? Particularly if you're... And if anyone knows cool, it's you, John. Well, exactly. So, um, <laughs> it's a middle name. So these companies have got huge problems in actually getting staff and getting kind of knowledge and know-how experience positions to be able yeah. to grow and to be able to find more oil. So, you know, potentially the world is you know, facing a bit of a crunch, I think. Yeah, the only other, the other part is you know, traditionally, oil and gas and mining was funded by syndicates. You know, a number of banks would come together, syndicate debt loan in together. Because of ESG, shareholders of, of said financial institutions are actively encouraging um, those loans not to be made. So you've, you've actually got a complete lack of investment as well going into or, or the ability to, you might used to, you know, used to have, say, a syndicate of eight, eight banks nowadays be lucky to have three or four so the terms just aren't as attractive and there's not as much capital being lent to the industry mm. um, so it's all you know I, I you know the oil price I think I think you know constructively it, it's you know there's lots of reasons for there to be support around where it is and on that basis yes as, as JR said oil is not $120 a barrel it goes back to your question of are they over earning you know potentially but I think the valuations probably reflect that yeah so we've had a bit of a main reversion a bit of a snapback anyway so let's hypothetically say i'm a client speaking with you i look at the performance of the FTSE over the last year we all know the FTSE, you know the large cap index is pretty well diversified geographically overwhelmingly global what's the point in holding explicit overseas exposure and, and john you shared this chart with us uh before before recording which all right, we're not saying for a moment that the UK is Greece, but in any given year, you've probably got, well, I looked at it the other day, you've got over 60 major developed stock indexes globally. The chances of the UK being the best performing one are, are pretty negligible. Mm. On that, in that sense, it pays to have a wee bit of a spread, but you know the other one that springs to mind, not just Greece here, as we can see on screen, but Japan. Japan's been yeah. awful. 
30 years. Yeah, I mean, if you look at history and you look at developed market equities, you know, the cult of equity is such that equities always go up. However, there are instances in history you have wars and revolutions and inflation mm. have been the primary killers of, of equity market indices. So, you know, Russia in 17, Germany in the 30s and again in 45. But this is Greece and the chart shows the MSCI Greece index going from, what, 40 to 150 in the, the good old days of the mid-noughties and then from 150 down to, what is it, 5? What is in the Greek index, by the way? Probably. Did you look? Bit of shipping, I think. (laughs) Bit of shipping for banks. Feta Um, cheese. You know, nothing like that has really happened to Greece. They've been through Eurozone debt crisis, sure. Mm. Total write-off their debts. But they've not had a war, they've not had a mega inflation, and they've not had a revolution. And this is a developed market index. And if Mm. you were, you know, a Greek investor, it's just fair to say you'd been much better served by being globally diversified than being in, in, in the local stock market. So... Yeah, I mean, we do need to be you know, slightly careful sometimes with that pronouncement that equities always go up, because mm. that's not always the case. I think, I think we just have to be very mindful of the stocks within our home biased index. So Yeah, that's, that's <coughs> what it is. It's sectors rather than geography. I, I right? think so, and, and you know, it makes sense for, for our UK clients to have more of a home bias because they spend, typically spend in sterling, earn in mm. sterling, and portfolios in, in sterling. But... You know, if we stop attract, you know, the danger with the LSE is we st- if we stop attracting the new businesses who are looking to IPO, you know, if we're no longer an attractive place for those businesses to list, um, you know, I suspect naturally our allocation to the UK will will fall anyway. Mm. Um, but we, yeah, we do have to be very mindful of the constituents within it um, and and whether we want exposure to to those areas or not. You know, I. I you know, I think it's disappointing. We we struggle to um, we struggle to um, get sort of more exciting tech businesses into the UK, and and part of that is I think UK investors aren't particularly good at valuing tech businesses. We tend to be more critical. You know, there's been a few tech names recently um, that are quite exciting stories that have have been a disaster because short sellers have got hold of them or. Um, you know, just just UK investors aren't very good at valuing those businesses. Whereas if they list on the Nasdaq, as an example, they tend to get much higher valuations. So if you're a company looking to raise capital and list somewhere, you know, the natural place to go is probably mm-hmm. the Nasdaq. I, I I have this really boring theory as to why this trend has reversed recently, probably from the seventies, eighties. The, the, the comp- I think the UK is just of declining relevance in terms of the global stage, in terms of the MSCI World Index. I mean, I don't know what it is in the 70s, 80s. I'd take a guess that it was over 15, 20 yeah, percent. Now 10, it's 20. three. Yeah, well, yeah. it was the biggest stock market in the world around World War One, and it was overtaken mm. by the US and never really looked back. Yeah, I mean, now you're looking at the performance of, if you're looking at the performance of global stock markets, I mean, the states is two thirds, right? So that's clearly the key component. Um, we've seen a bit of a, the main loser, if you like, with the UK being as one of the winners. One of the main losers recently has been the US, right? Because it's mm. sort of to underperform the rest of the world, as we can see here, for the first time in a very, very, very long time. I mean, mm. look at that run of form yeah. versus the rest of the world. I think the reasons for that has been have been covered pretty well elsewhere. Mm. Big tech waiting. Um, do we think that's do we think that trend is going to keep going, that the rest of the world outperforms the US? I mean, interestingly, 
before the financial crisis, the 10 years before, actually the European index was outperformed the S&P. I think, you know, again, it comes back to the constituents within the index, but higher rates, higher inflation benefit, benefited at the time the businesses within the European index. You know, lower inflation, lower rates really benefited these huge, hugely innovative businesses that were growing on cheap capital. Um, and again, you know, the, the globalization really helped, um, you know, the move to, the move, you know, moving technology, people moving to the cloud, and I think access to customers on a global basis just went ballistic, and we all saw who benefited from that. Um, but as, you know, as debt has become more expensive, you know, as there is more, there's, there's less PE money being deployed potentially, you know, that, that really quick growth, I think we're in a different environment. I don't think things mm. probably happen quite as quickly. Um, it would be, I'd be surprised if the next 10 years in terms of the US are the same as they Not have been the same. I, I just, I think, you know, valuations got, with the benefit of hindsight, got, got stupid in some areas. Um, it's difficult, isn't it? Because when yeah. you look at 21 times where it was in 2021 and think, well, yeah. clearly that was overvalued, but we're 18 months down the road. Yeah. Trying to think back to how we were all feeling back then. I think we, we all got the sense that things were overheated, mm. but we're not the sort of shop to play in the really, really speculative type stuff, so mm. we were never in the really, really grossly sure. overvalued stuff. But I think there's a general sense you can feel that things are overvalued, but mm. things can stay overvalued for a very, yeah, very long period yeah. of time. Valuation's not your guide to what's going to happen in the short term whatsoever. Just look at yeah. the 90s. I mean, the US equity mm. market got expensive in 97, and then what, doubled if not tripled from yeah. there? Japan in the late 80s. So, you know, it can feel like things are overheating, but you know, what are you going to do? Sell the minute the PE goes over 16? Well, you're probably going to miss out a lot, aren't you? So you just need to be pragmatic about it. Uh, I think I agree with James. I'd be very surprised if the US has another 10 years like the last 10 years on a relative basis. You mentioned, James, about rates, and Johnny, you shared this chart yeah. before we came in. Um, do you want to talk us through what's going yeah. on here? So if we go back to those halcyon days of 2020, 2021, the S&P was on 22 times earnings, but what was the alternative and the, the, you know it was the TINA acronym wasn't it there is no alternative you, mm. because US treasuries at the time were yielding 1% 1.5% yeah. cash was getting you naught we all know about that financial repression you know you were being pushed to buy assets today you can buy a US 10 year treasury mm. at 4% or 1 year treasury is basically 5% 5% for no risk whatsoever yeah. now US equities today are on 18 times which means that you know the valuation gap if you like um, between equities and bonds in the US, and the same is true in the UK, um, has shrunk. Therefore, mm. the relative attractiveness of equities, you know, it's no longer there is no alternative, it is there is now an alternative, yeah. and that's the alternative team. Uh, and what you can see here is basically the relative attractiveness right of buying a company versus buying the risk-free rate. Absolutely. Because this is the earnings that a company yeah. is spitting out. Yeah. Now, you could sort of argue that that 5% interest rate that you can get on a one year today is a sort of, you know, that's not, not the new normal over 30 years and that's not going to last very long because rates should come back down again mm. as inflation moderates and maybe there's a recession so maybe the US equity market at 18 times still looks okay but I'm, um, you know, I'm very, and we see it with our clients walking the door if you are a traditional cautious conservative investor with a lowercase c 
um, and you wanted a steady 4-5% return with as minimal risk as possible, we couldn't do that for them a year ago, one year yeah. ago, because bonds, yeah. high quality bonds were yielding 1 or 2%, yeah. we couldn't get to 5% by going down that route, so we had to buy equities. Today, step this way sir, mm. we can buy you some gilts, mm. we can buy you mm. some high quality corporate bonds yielding 5, 5.5%, mm. you can have a little bit of equity as well if, you, you know, if you're happy to. But the you know the game has changed, and therefore we don't need to be putting quite so many clients into more medium and higher risk portfolios with more inequities because the returns that those clients want are available on bonds. Now, yes, okay, inflation is currently ten percent, but and that should moderate, um, mm. should moderate quite significantly as the year goes by. So, you know, one can make an argument that the S and P today is more overvalued at eighteen times than it was a year, a year and a half ago, at twenty-one times. Um, I mean, I, I interestingly, I've actually had. <coughs> The other side of the conversation as well, which is clients that are looking for growth, and and historically have had the large proportion of of the portfolio um, in equities. Actually, you know, when when decent you know investment grade corporate bonds are giving you six ish, maybe a bit more in, in institutional lines. Now, actually, I wouldn't mind 10, 15 percent of the portfolio in in mm. direct names, um, and you know, I, I've got. You know, particularly with the year we've had, I've got a lot of sympathy for that, and being able to lock in very nice returns from you know, arguably corporates with better ratings than sovereigns in some cases, um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, 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 you know, in, in truth, I'm quite excited about the environment we find ourselves in. I think, you know, it's going back to proper portfolio management in terms of there is an alternative. Mm. You know, we can look across lots of asset classes now, and and. You know, we as, as as JR said, we were we were forced to take on, you know, more more equity risk and and or use alternatives which had may or may a, not work, may or may not work, had more of a linkage to equities. Um, you know, and, and we thought we were being very clever in lots of cases, having underweight underweight fixed interest positions um, because we were concerned about where rates were. But actually, on the other side, the alternatives we thought would probably protect us a bit more, probably haven't protected us as much as we thought they would. It's been a mixed bag. It has ever. been. It's some, some like have been alternatives it. as a label for a very diverse asset class. Mm. Is I mean, I mean, any, any alternatives to another episode. <laughs> very good um, <laughs> Let's. Uh, I want to get to the economic stuff, so let's mm. zip through US equities. I mean, the technicals look really good, right? Do you want to take us through these? I mean, because you yeah. sent these across. Um, well, we need the CFA to do the technical. Uh, I haven't got a hope. So, <laughs> so statistics, innit? So there's a few sort of triggers in terms of what the market does after it sees a 20% decline, and, and a few of those triggers have been hit, mm. and not just on on this uh, this one we've got here on the screen now. But um, historically, when the S&P has done what it's done mm. now, i.e., risen above its 200-day moving average, which essentially is its one-year average price. Um, if it's done that for more than 18 days, it's never gone on to fall back below the previous no. lows, which suggests that, you know, historically, or from a historical perspective, you know, the lows for this bear market have been seen on the S&P. Mm -hmm. um, caveat that, sample size is 11 or 12 times, so, you know, it's not particularly... As in it's happened 11 or 12 times before. Yeah, since yeah. 1958, mm -hmm. so... Yeah, the technicals look pretty good. Um, the market's had a strong bounce. How do you think about technicals? Because I've spent more time looking at technicals over the last 12 months when we've been in an absolute bear market than I have done in my entire career. 
I don't th I'd never base an investment decision on a technical, no. but I, I think, you know, they are useful to look at. I, I think, you know, for me, relative strength is quite important around stocks um, and also benchmarks, you know, indices. Um, but, yeah, I, I, you know, some people use technicals a lot more than I do um, within our business. I, I think, you know, some, some will never use them, but I think alongside... Um, fundamentals they're useful to look at and, and particularly you know something like mm. something like this is you know important to I, I think it's a really interesting point because I think a lot of the market and a lot of investors are slightly cautious of the run we've had this year um, you know or, or since not great, is it? no since September last year probably and I think it's just been, been because the bounce has been so, you know, so big. Um, you know, we're still waiting for the consumer to potentially fall off a cliff. And, and, but when you look at you know, something like this, and, and, and it's interesting, and, and we often say, you know, if everyone's thinking one way, usually the opposite happens. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, Buffett, Buffett, you know, we all, we all quote him, but be greedy when others are fearful. And Undoubtedly, I think it's it's amazing that you know we all recognise mm. that in the short term, mm. market movements are totally unpredictable and almost even chaotic. Yeah. But we're all human nature is to look for these patterns, mm. right? Definitely. And on the basis mm. that you know I've been reading his latest missive um, before we came up, and about to pick out some bits and bobs from it. This this really caught my eye. Um, so this is from Jeremy Grantham's re recent piece, which is nice and cheery. It's called After a Time Out, Back to the mean Meat Grinder. Uh, so you can tell it's going to be positive stuff. But one of, the, one of the elements that he picks out of it, which is pretty remarkable, yeah. um, going back to 1932 for seven months of the presidential cycle. So basically from the 1st of October of the second year, uh, which was the 1st of October 2022 for this cycle, through to the, the 30th of April, of the third year of the presidential cycle, so 30th of April coming, the returns since 1932 equal those of the remaining 41 months of the cycle. That's amazing. So basically all of the returns of the presidential cycle tend to come in a seventh month window, yeah. which is closing on the 30th of yeah. April. Yeah. He says this has a less than one in a million probability of occurring by chance. This stuff happens everywhere. There's little patterns everywhere, oh. and there's you know reasons that you can put in your mind, narrative that you can use to explain that. Probably that the president, you know, whoever's in the White House, wants to spend a few Trust quid. Mm. Yeah. Maybe, but um, that's pretty remarkable. That that's is. been the case since 1932. So, mm. what's he saying there? Hold, go go mega long until 30th of April, okay. and then okay. vlog okay. everything. Okay. Who knows? Not I mean, investment advice, of course. No, but he no, was. It was quite a cheerful, cheerful piece, wasn't it? Um, it uh, yeah. I mean, let's deal with it now. Um, I've been waiting for a while to deal with it. Let's just get stuck into it. Okay. Um, so here's a few quotes I picked out. Um, I believe that a continued market decline of at least substantial proportions, while not the near certainty it was a year ago, is much more likely than not. My calculations of trend line value of the S&P 500 adjusted upwards for trend line growth and for expected inflation is about 3,200 by the end of 2023. I believe it is likely 3 to 1 to reach that trend and spend some time at least below it this year or next. Uh, for example, um, 
to put this into perspective, it would still be a far smaller percent deviation from trend line value than the overpricing we had at the end of 2021 over 70%. So you shouldn't be tempted to think that it absolutely cannot happen. For an example of a real nightmare, in 1974, the S&P troughed below seven times earnings. I'm going to tell you now why the S&P is not going back to seven times earnings, and it's because of this chart on screen. Um, the companies in the S&P are just much, much, much better companies than they were in the 80s. But I mean, it, they used to make widgets and railroads and steel companies and oil companies, and they're now Apple and Amazon and Microsoft. I mean, there's, there's people who compare valuation over time and not living in this planet. Um, margins are so much higher. There's so much better run. The business models are so different. Mm. Uh, there's no comparison for me. Yeah, 100%. So this is showing you the amount of employees it took back in the 80s to generate a million bucks of revenue compared to today. And obviously it's creators. I mean, this just shows you human progress, right? Mm. Companies become more efficient, more profitable, and shareholders benefit from that over time. I, th I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, also you've got to look at what the earnings growth is. It can't just be on a, you know, a historic basis on what what the PE is. You know, what what where we sit today. I know, you know, we've just gone through. We're, we're almost through another earnings season, but um, you know, it, you know, it has been lower than you know, the the growth rate has been lower than than historical averages but you know if you look at there's lots of brilliant businesses within the S&P that are still growing at very exciting rates um, and, and that's why I can completely agree the S&P is not going to seven times early I mean if it does <laughs> well if well, it does the farm's being sold and we're leveraging up <laughs> <laughs> I mean this is the thing right because you know we sit here and obviously you know this is what we talk about, right? We talk about valuation, talk about what's going to happen in the short term, but ultimately, the tide is only ever going in one direction. Uh, a hugely important point, and completely missed by so many investors. We all have a certain amount of our pension, a certain amount of our salary has to go into a pension. Um, access to investing is so much simpler than it's ever been. Now in the old days, to invest to buy a stock or a share or a bond, you would have to physically go into an office and set it up. And uh, you know, you it's just what was your commission back then about five percent? Was it seven? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it just wasn't easy to do. These days, you can set up a platform. You can set yourself up on a platform in probably ten minutes. Yep. KYC money laundering's done immediately you can deposit your cash immediately you can buy whatever you want pretty much immediately yeah. it's just that you know these huge pension schemes particularly in the US they are massive net buyers every, every single, single month, month of equities yeah. and as are we through our pension contributions exactly every month exactly and and you know those contributions will get bigger and bigger they mm. they just have to be because ultimately we are going to be less dependent on the state when we get to retirement age, mm. and our children will be even less dependent because the state can't afford to provide pensions in the way that it used to. No. The state pension just will not be adequate to retire on properly as mm. you know as, as our gen you know generations get older. You know, the, in, in in Australia, um, they have superannuation funds, and the and the, the the percentage of salary that has to go in is substantially larger than it is here. I think mm. it's almost I think it's ten percent. 
don't quote me on that, but I think it's ten percent. Whereas here, it's obviously three. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. But that the plan by the treasury will be that three percent grows, so that we all have much larger private pensions. Mm. You, you, I I love the point that you make about access to investment because there's a lot of doom and gloom, and you know I've I've spoken in the past about how pessimism naturally is it makes you sound smarter than optimism. But yeah. one of the great strides that we've seen over the past couple of decades is just how accessible investment is to everyone causes problems occasionally mm. <laughs> when you have market environments like a couple of years ago mm. but in terms of ease of access it's night and day from where it was I, I think it's, I think it's amazing for everyone that you know it's not just a certain class of person that, that can invest in in companies and mm. and you know the idea that you know young people brands they like in particular you know whether it's Nike or Adi- yeah, or, Adi- or, or whatever else, yeah, they can actually buy companies. yeah buy shares in those companies. Yeah. I think it's really exciting, and um, you know they can get at investor reports or, or be invited to special you know to, to certain events. Sometimes it's mm. I think it's I think it's really good, and and there should be a lot more education around it at school as well. I know there's been some talk from from Rishi about making changes on that, but we can probably have another po- we can probably have another video discussion on that anyway. Yeah. Next one for next time. Guys, one for next time. Um let's stick to simple things at the minute, mm. like the economy. Does <laughs> anyone have good. any clue where that's going? I know economic predictions are not our bag anyway, but we're on a podcast, so let's have a go, lads. <laughs> this is all it's it's a very, very confusing environment or it feels confusing to me. Yeah, but I mean PMIs service data it, it's there's no there's no there's no clear picture on where we are i think you know you, you still got i mean fundamentally i think you go back to what monetary policy has done and, and you've had a huge you had a huge expansion of, of monetary policy through covid you know for lots of good reasons but i think you know money supply increased by 40 percent in the u.s um you've had a a huge reduction in that um, recently, and, and you know these are really powerful policies, and, and we just we just haven't seen this sort of change in money supply before. It's um, or, or not 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 recently, and and it's very difficult to understand or well, to try and predict. We're what still coming through that, aren't we? So we are. Yeah, the pandemic. We were all sat at home, and then we realised Amazon was still working, so we bought loads of stuff because we couldn't get our haircut, we couldn't yeah. go to restaurants, so. Yeah. We bought hair trimmers. Some of us did. Dave didn't. Unfortunately, <laughs> un- unfortunately, I bought a few too many hair yeah. trimmers. I went a bit rogue on top. And, and <laughs> you know, we bought loads of goods, and that helped PMIs because the makers of stuff and the makers of goods had a wonderful time in 2020, 2021. And then, as soon as we were allowed yeah. back out, we didn't need to buy any more stuff. Yeah. We bought a barbecue, bought some garden furniture, bought some gym kit, and I want to go out with my mates now. So, goods demand fell off a cliff. PMIs mm. weren't weak. Allied to that, we had you know, war in Ukraine, gas prices going up, which was you know, pretty terrifying. Yeah. We had the historical anomaly, I think, of the mini-budget in the UK, which you know, set the cat amongst the pigeons. Interest rate expectations went through the roof, bond yields went through the roof, and that's now all unwinding because gas prices have encouragingly pretty much collapsed. Um, so you've got you know, lots of kind of messy stuff in the data and... and it's too almost too difficult. You know, most people two months ago were saying that the US and the UK and Europe were nailed on for a recession in mm. 2023, mm. and it was it would be impossible for them to avoid that. Yeah. Now, not saying that we will avoid a recession this year by any stretch, 
but I think the, we're in more. The, the things the things that have happened that needs to happen to avoid a recession has happened. Mm. I.e., interest rate expectations have come down a little bit, apart from this week maybe, and energy prices have come down, and all of a sudden, the consumers had a bit of a release valve, mm. and maybe most households haven't felt the impact of higher mortgage rates yet, particularly in the UK. I mean, that's that's the big one, isn't it? Because you know, there will be lots of people still fixed on one, one and a quarter, one and a half. It's a bit of a sore topic over here. He's locked in for the next century, basically. But but as we as we roll, you know, the next six months, there's going to be more maturing mortgages. The next six months after that, and and you know, these are these are really meaningful interest rate increases. Mm. You know, they are taking significant consumer spend away from from you know different areas, and and I think I think. You know, people with mortgages coming up for maturity, they're very aware of what's going to happen, but it's almost, well, there's no point in worrying about it until it's done. I think, you know, the, the, the consumer, you know, what the consumer does is always a lagging, a lagging effect. It, it's never an indication of what the future will hold. You know, the consumer usually spends all of the consumer's money until they can't spend any more. So we, we don't really know where we are until we, yeah, we get to that place. It's never a good idea to bet against the consumer in the US in particular. No, and they've still got savings built up from the pandemic. You know, if, if, you, if you take trend mm. savings and cash deposit levels and mm. you extrapolate it from, from pre-pandemic, you know, obviously you had a big spike in the pandemic of built up savings and that's mm. all now being um, chipped away at, but there's still quite a lot of excess savings potentially still there, which is weathering the US consumer through. And um, yeah, we had some numbers from Home Depot yesterday, didn't we? Which were not, you know, they weren't the most cheerful, but they were okay. They weren't, you know, they were disastrous. Mm. Um, but generally, US retail sales in January, you know, the official data was really strong, surprisingly strong. But as so, you were saying before we started recording this, you know, there was a really interesting article in the FT on the impact of the weather. Yeah. Um, yeah, the weather has had a massive impact. They had no snow in New York in January at all, which, if you think about what happens in the UK when it snows, mm. the whole country grinds to a halt. If you expect snow and you don't get it, and you work outside and you're in construction or mm. you're, you know, whatever. So, you know, the seasonal adjustments are probably not quite there, and it was the same with the payrolls numbers. You know, maybe the seasonal mm. adjustments will wash through in the next few months. So I think at the moment, taking one month's data and extrapolating out and, and judging the health of the economy that way particularly since you've still got the, the pandemic impact on certain sectors and en- yeah. the energy shock, then I think it's it's too much to kind of take a snapshot view of what's happening right now. I think I think it's just too difficult. Yeah. I mean, we, we really did get lucky on, on gas prices and how warm the weather was. Yeah. I mean, it, it was looking absolutely dire in October time up until we realised we were, well, Dave was still in shorts and t-shirt coming into the office in December, <laughs> weren't you? So. Hardy. Hardy. No heating on in our house. Absolutely not. I mean, one of the, one of the really, supr- well, maybe surprising in one sense, the job market's been brilliant. The job market has held up really, really nicely. We've discussed this before. You know, jobs are probably one of the last thing to go. Um, you sent me this before, which I thought was quite funny. But um, <laughs> you know, are the robots coming to take our jobs? Because five years ago, that was a genuine concern that a large swathe of the population would have their job napped off them by a robot. Now, when the cost of labour is significantly higher than it has been in recent memory, actually, maybe automation's quite attractive mm. to companies. Um, giving AI is the topic du jour. You've got choice of one, Google or, uh, or Google or Microsoft, which one are you backing? 
Do valuations come into it? No. No, okay. Um, I mean, it's fair to say Microsoft have got their head start with the investment in OpenAI and ChatGPT. Yeah. yeah. Does first mover advantage make a difference? <coughs> Maybe. Um, I find it quite difficult to bet against Google, given the, the outstanding innovation that they've developed over the last mm. 20, 30 years and the, the There's quantum a of people they've got there, of good people they've got there. There's a lot of projects going on in the background as well, which there's a lot of cash that gets burnt up because it's trying to show that it's not, you know, the monopoly it has or virtual monopoly it has isn't quite as cash generative as, as perhaps it is. So I think there's, yeah, they are doing a lot in the background that we won't really hear about. No. Um, but it, yes, and maybe they were caught off guard by the announcement and the release of ChatGPT, which is yeah. the quickest new innovation to hit 100 million users. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, quicker than WhatsApp, quicker it's than because it's been writing my blog post for the last six months. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's predicted a stock market crash on the 15th of March, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, almost certainly. Has <laughs> it? Apparently, that's uh, what Jay, I was saying. Uh, no, I, I, mean, I, I, I don't want to bet against Google, put it that way. Mm, I'd take I, I'm going to well. go with Microsoft. Oh, well, listen. That's <laughs> what makes a market. Oh, 100%. 100%. <laughs> Just the point about the job market. I thought this was really interesting, John. Um, that stocks do well when un unemployment rises. This is totally counterintuitive. Isn't it's it? totally counterintuitive, hmm. but I feel like this is time for the weekly announcement. The counterintuitive things happen <laughs> all, all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, actually, once you think about it, it does make a lot of sense. When the unemployment rate is high, it means you're normally in a recession already because unemployment is the last thing to go in a recession. So when you buy the stock market, is a forward-looking indicator. Hence, if you're buying it in a recession, it's probably already down because it probably already fell six months ago, a year ago. Thus, your returns from that point forward are probably very good because you're hitting the recovery. What about, what, how about thinking about it that unemployment's high, the workers of the left are working extremely hard to keep their jobs? As the acceleration. Oh, that's a dystopian no, way of thinking I, I, about I, it. <laughs> <laughs> the acceleration in revenues comes. On a much lower cost base, mm. and then that's, I remember. And then you get you get your stock returns. I think you're you're coloured a wee bit by like your formative years. I think in, in the stock market, and I've only been doing this about twelve years, but I can remember meetings that I was sat in in the early years, and every single company or fund manager that invested was talking about companies cutting costs and laying off staff, yeah. and zero based accounting was the topic du jour. And it felt like that went away for a while, and now we're seeing stocks start to pop when they're mm. announcing layoffs. So maybe actually there's a bit of that probably in mm. in what we're seeing here on screen. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I I think that probably continues for the near term. I think Meta's earnings call was pretty instructive on that point. You know, we've gone from torching cash mm. into the metaverse project. Whether it works or not is kind of moot. But um, now the talk was about restraint and efficiencies, mm. and, and I think you're seeing that from companies now, and it probably goes, this is the business cycle, right? Uh, yeah, and I, I think there's been another thing, you know, COVID, I think, I think COVID almost gave a lot of power to employees in terms of how they wanted to work, and, and I, you know, lots of businesses have struggled to get workers back to the office. Um, I think that tide has probably turned with recession in the headlights, people worrying about future costs and thinking, actually, I probably need to be seen a bit more by my manager or, you know, actually, 
I need a pay rise because the costs at home have gone up 20%. I'd better work a bit harder and come into the office. I, I do, I know that's being quite a gem, that, that, that's maybe, maybe being slightly harsh, but I do think there's an element of that. I totally across agree. Certainly the UK, US. Um, you know, you've had some tech companies now that are actually saying workers have to come in three days a week. Um, you know, a year. Elon Musk has been big on that, hasn't he? Yeah. I mean, a year ago, that just wouldn't have, it just wouldn't have worked. Yeah, but, but then, like, a lot of these particularly tech employees get paid a large proportion of remuneration in stock, mm. and their stock price is created. So, yeah. uh, they themselves are incentivized to get the stock price higher, share price higher, which is why Meta, Facebook, no longer talk about the metaverse, they talk about efficiencies. Mm. I think mm. efficiency was the most used word in Zuckerberg's transcript. Yeah. Um, cost cutting, margin, you know, mm. all makes a lot of sense because they, they need to get the share price back up again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think we're in a recession or going into one? I don't think we're in a recession. Now I, th I think I, I, I'm, I'm going to really sit on the fence and say a soft recession. Um, it's just really hard to see from the data. You know, it, I, I think if we were if we were asked the question six months ago, the answer would have been very different. Which was, we were, we're definitely going to recession. I think we have all been very surprised at how resilient the consumer has been, and. and the earnings that have come out again are you know, we are really lucky that we can invest in some seriously high quality businesses um, with you know, excellent management teams and we can we can sit alongside those management teams and, and share in future profits I think actually businesses are run you know not all businesses are run very well but certainly you know, I think the ones we we look at closely are doing a really good job um, but I, I've been, I've been surprised at how resilient earnings have been. I think I think we all are. I mean, it doesn't feel like a natural environment if you're concerned about an economic slowdown to be talking about banks and the banks have done amazingly well. Um, yeah. Talk me talk me through the banks. Why are people buying the banks? Why do you like them? Yeah. Well, it's it's a pretty straightforward. I mean, they can park their cash with the Bank of England for four percent, and the UK banks can. So. James's current account, his savings account, has been used by NatWest or Barclays to earn them 4% and they're paying him 0%. Yep. Um, so that gap is called net interest margin and that's 350 basis points, 3.5% yep. they're earning on And cash. two years ago it was? Two years ago it was zero because they were paying James nothing and the mm -hmm. Bank of England was paying them nothing. So I mean, historically that net interest margin has been, what, 200 basis points? Probably, yeah. And we're talking about 320, 350? Mm. You know that that and and these these banks are not expensive. You know if you if you look at what they're paying in dividends, their free cash flow yield, um, multiple of earnings, capital, you know, ratios, are high. capital ratios are are exceptionally high. If you think actually they've done a pretty extraordinary job in in, a, in in an environment where they've had virtually no net interest margin, they've managed to batten down the hatches. They've managed to rebuild those balance sheets. Cut their costs cut their costs and, and in reality show some growth and now the interest rate has started going up. You know, they they're sitting they're sitting pretty. I mean it was it is a bit of a surprise, you know, that the you know, the UK banks reported um, 
this week, last week, and there was a bit of disappointment around a few of them because the net interest margin wasn't quite as high as probably yeah. the market wanted. I think my instinct is there was some probably some pressure put on them to give deposit holders a bit more than they probably needed to. Mm. I also think there's some disintermediation. So come back to your point about opening mm. a brokerage account on wherever in mm. five minutes flat. Yeah. If NatWest are paying you 0.5%, yeah. but you can get 3% with Marcus or Chase or whoever it might be, mm. go mm. and have a look at Martin Lewis's website and they'll tell you where to go. And you could open an account on five minutes flat on your phone. Yeah. You're going to do that for yeah. the extra 3%. Yeah. You wouldn't have done it a year or two ago if the marginal benefit was only 1% a year. Yeah. So I think disintermediation in mm. the banking sector, um, access to online accounts, you can buy a money market fund, which is not cash by the way, it's a security, mm. um, and that basically gives you Bank of England base rate, it's 4%. You can yeah. buy a two-year gilt for 4%, which is backed by the government. So a lot of cash has found its way out mm. of the banking system for the legacy banks that haven't been playing savings mm. rates. Um, into these other areas and I think that came through a little bit in the numbers particularly NatWest um, Barclays yeah. to a degree yeah. wasn't it so you know, banks can't milk that net interest margin maybe in the same way they could no. when we had to go to a branch and write an application for I, I think there was an element as well is, is, is political you know the outlook statements were cautious I think if they had been if it had been another industry where you haven't got such public pressure and dislike for a certain, you know, for the banks. I think they could have potentially. I think the energy sector takes the takes the basket at the minute. No. Very true. Well, they, yeah, no, both. But I think. Well, the government still know, owns half. Well, half now, yeah, it's yeah. not a good look to be a cash machine as exactly as BP called themselves when you're owned at least partially by the government. Exactly. I, I think you know there is an element of trying to placate. Placate is probably the wrong word, but. Not sh not scream from the from the rooftops in terms of how much money you're making, and I, I you know I think on the other side it's never been right to own banks heading into a recession. So mm. I said that. I, it's I posed that very question to our banks analyst Will yesterday. But <laughs> but, I bet he liked that. <laughs> but but this is the most telegraphed recession ever. So. Very true. Uh, yeah. We didn't ask you your. Uh, are we are we going into a recession? We didn't ask you the question. I think we're in one, but okay. I'm from Northern Ireland, so my default setting. <laughs> John, I think. Uh, I would be shocked if we don't have one this year. So I do think we will have one this year. Perfect. That was fun, fellas. Moving to the end, the conclusion. I've got Alex <laughs> waving at me, telling me to, that we, we've reached time. Um, we're trying to make this a regular thing, folks. Mm. So um, we're going to be doing it every couple of weeks, hopefully. If there's any topics you have, mm. any burning desire for us to talk about, then drop me a note at david.henry at quilterchaviot.com. Um, but thanks to you two fellas. Do you Thank enjoy you yourselves? Really enjoyed it. It's been good fun. What are you doing at the weekend? Um, I will hopefully get outside for a bit of a bike ride, I think. Mm. You've been putting the miles in on Strava recently. I love it. I will Absolutely probably not be watching Wales against England because Wales are probably on strike. <laughs> Is that going to happen? It looks increasingly so. Looks increasingly so. Yeah. Okay. Really? Yeah. Well, well, there we are. There's John's a got and, away, so I'm on that. I'm yeah. on that detail. But okay. thanks very much, guys. That I was really a blast. enjoyed that. Cheers. Thank you very much. Cheers.